Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, so uh, tonight we're going to talk about the God who knows and controls the future. And if you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, we're going to pick up where we left off. And I know you, I, left, I left you hanging on a little bit of a cliffhanger last week, if you remember. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has had the dream, and um, they're going to kill all the magicians, magi, and the conjurers, and everybody else, because Nebuchadnezzar has now stated that um, not only do I want you to interpret the dream, I want you to tell me what my dream was. So the pressure's really on these guys, and they're, they're just, they're, they're trying to stall, and he figures out, you're just trying to stall. And he says, if you don't tell me what the dream is, and then the interpretation, I'm going to have you guys pulled apart limb from limb, and I'm going to have your houses destroyed down to rubble. So they're, they're jockeying for, you know, anything. And so finally, they find out through, uh, well, what's his name, um, Ariok. He, he knows about Daniel interpreting dreams, so he brings Daniel in because Daniel finds out, and Daniel says, let me go talk to Nebuchadnezzar. He goes in and says, hey, you know, just give me about a little bit of time. We'll figure it out. So he goes back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They start dialoguing, you know, and say, well, you got to pray. we got to pray that God gives us the dream and the interpretation or else everybody's going to die. So we, we left off last week where Daniel now comes back to Nebuchadnezzar, and he makes a statement to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, there's a God in heaven who reveals dream mysteries. There's this God who's outside of our time continuum, outside of our realm, who knows these things. And he goes on to say this, this dream that uh, God has given you, because he comes back now to tell me he knows the interpretation. This dream that God has given you, it's about things that will take place in the latter days. That's verse 28 of chapter 2, in the latter days. So now he's really got um, Nebuchadnezzar's attention because... These are end times things he's talking about. And if you think about it and you put it all together, a little bit of a wider base on this. You know, Israel has, um, at the time, had really failed in their spreading of Yahweh, God, and being the light to the nations. And so now you have Daniel, a young man, who's probably now, probably maybe early 20s, I don't know his exact age at this time, but here he is to bring the light of Yahweh God to the, the most powerful uh, man on earth, the king of Babylon. And so he's going to tell him the dream, and he's going to tell him the interpretation. And so tonight, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what the dream is, and we're going to look at what the interpretation of that dream is. So let's begin <clears throat> by reading, and, and by the way, let's remember, does... Um, Quick side note, does Nebuchadnezzar believe in gods? Yes, he does. Because there's 1,197 temples in Babylon. Remember that. They believe in all kinds of false gods. But he's going to find out that there's one god, a god, who can interpret dreams and he can tell you the future. So verse 31, let me start right there. Verse 31 to verse 35 says this. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. Now, here he goes. The head of, this, of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, 
its belly and its thighs of bronze. It's, verse 33, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. And it struck the statue uh, on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind uh, carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Guys, is that a mouthful or what? I mean, that's quite a dream. And can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar when now Daniel has told him what the dream is? Now, let me give you a few observations before we get into the interpretation of the dream. Now, the first thing is you got to notice it's a single statue. It's just one statue. It's an awesome statue. As you look at the different metals, you have gold, silver, bronze, iron, then iron mixed with clay on the feet and the toes. So as you're seeing it, you're watching the value of each metal from head to toe. It gets less and less and less as you watch the statue and the different metals that it's made out of. What are the feet and the toes made out of again? Iron and what? And iron and clay do not adhere very well, do they? In fact, they don't adhere. So now you must draw the conclusion that you have this beautiful statue, but you have feet on it and toes that are wobbly. They're not going to be able to hold this statue up because iron and clay do not adhere together very well. So then you find there's this big stone they get, it's not cut by human hands. This big stone comes out and it strikes the statue at its feet. And the statue just crumbles down. Now, if you think about that, just on a side note, that kind of reminds us a little bit of, um, of David who has the stone, remember? And he hits the giant and the giant goes down. You think about it in, in kind of a side note like that. Now, the stone that comes out, it crushes the statue, and it says it becomes like chaff, which the wind drives away on a threshing floor. So just for the sake of some of you that don't know what that is, that's a very common thing in those days in the Old Testament. When they would get their wheat harvest, they would take it, and they'd have a mound, a higher mound, and they'd level, they'd level the top of this thing off, they would take their wheat there, they'd lay it out on the ground, and then they'd have their ox hooked up to a, a threshing, uh, a thresher, um, it's a cart. And the ox would pull it and they would thresh over the wheat and, and it had like rocks and hard things on the bottom. So it would break up the wheat from the chaff. You want the wheat, you don't want the chaff. So once that's broken up and it, because it's up on a higher hill area, flattened out, they would take what's called a winnowing fork. You heard of a winning fork with John the Baptist. The winning fork, they'd shoot, they'd get everything, they'd shoot it up in the air. The wheat and the chaff would go up. The chaff is very light. The wind's blowing. The wheat would fall down, the good stuff, and the chaff would blow away because you don't want the chaff. So you take that pick. That was a very common thing for them to do back then. So take that idea and you realize that this thing is crushed so badly by this giant stone that becomes a mountain that... It just blows away like the dust, like the chaff at that time. And so Daniel is laying out this whole dream 
uh, to him. And what do you think, or question, as, as Nebuchadnezzar's listening to this, what do you think he's thinking or feeling in his mind? Because it's his dream, and Daniel has given him the dream. He hasn't given him even the interpretation yet. I think he must have been filled with awe, fear, terror, wonder. I mean, this guy knows a dream, and yet that's exactly what my dream was. And so now from there, we move on to what's the interpretation? Because guys, the interpretation of the dream, it's from Daniel's perspective, they're looking forward into history in this dream. From our perspective, we're looking back into history for most of it. But for part of the dream, we're still looking into the future of our lives. That's how much the dream encompasses this particular dream. And this is one of the first big uh, visions and interpretations that we get out of the book of Daniel. There's so much in here. And he's right on the money. As I told you last week, many people think that Daniel could not have written this, this, uh, this thing out uh, until after it happened because they say he just got everything right. There's no way he could have done that. But he did. Because God gave him the interpretation. God gave him the dream. Now, here we go in your notes. And we have a lot of cross-referencing tonight when we get to certain spots. So the, the interpretation of the dream. Look at verse 36, 7, and 8. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar? He's like leaning forward, right? He's got his popcorn. It's like his, you know, his milk duds. It's like, give me the dream, man. And so he says, you, O king... Are, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And whenever the sons of men dwell, and wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. He just tells Nebuchadnezzar. So that's the first thing in your notes right there. Bullet point number one. The head of gold is the Babylonian Empire. In your notes, the head of gold is the Babylonian Empire. That is Nebuchadnezzar's empire. So he begins the interpretation. And he says, you, O king. When Nebuchadnezzar, hearing the interpretation, and he says, you, O king. Man, that must have gotten Nebuchadnezzar to light up because now he's in this dream. He's part of this whole thing. Now Nebuchadnezzar understands that God, this God of Daniel, has direct messaged him in a dream. Amen? He's directly spoken to this guy. Now, now, here's your key truth in your notes from what we just read. His authority, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, his authority and rule came from God. His authority and his rule came from God. It says key truth right there in your notes. Because in verse 38, Daniel said, he, God, has given them into your hand. God gave you these things. Now, that's very consistent that God is the one who gives authority and rule. Very consistent because real quick, keep your marker here. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 2 again. Remember when Daniel, the beginning of the book, it says verse 2 of chapter 1. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, meaning Nebuchadnezzar's, along with some of the vessels. Now, in other words, did Nebuchadnezzar just take Jehoiakim or did God give Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand? God, so God's controlling. God's pulling all the strings because Jehoiakim was in deep sin and so he gave him into his hand. So 
now we get a picture, and this is a big picture for us Christians, that all rule and all authority come from God. Right? I mean all of it. Now I have a verse for you that I can't spend 25 minutes on because it'll conjure up so many questions in your mind. But let me just show you something. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, there in your notes. See it there in your notes? I'm going to have you read it with me. So I'm going to count to three like we do on Sunday mornings. And those of you that are closer to me now because I'm on the floor who don't read on Sunday, I'm watching. No, just read it with me. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Okay, so, uh, long story short. So, I, I, I study on Tuesday mornings at a coffee shop. I'm incognito, baseball cap, everything. And, and there was a policeman in there when I walked in. And whenever I see a policeman sitting by himself, I just do that. I go, hey, I just want to tell you, I thank you for everything you do. And they're always super appreciative. Because they don't know how people feel about them. I want them to know that I feel real good about them. That, you know, if not for them, we'd be hiding in our homes with iron bars and guns, right? If not for them. And we can complain about them all you want. I don't. But if you do, think about this. Who are you going to call when you're in trouble? Somebody's breaking in. Not Ghostbusters, right? You're going to call that very person that you might have talked bad about. Think about that next time. Before you talk back bad about policemen, you say, oh, Jim, they did this. They're not perfect, just like you and me. Amen to that one? Now, they're in authority. Now, God puts all authority into authority. Now, that's why when you read in Timothy, and you want to write this down, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. That's why we are called to pray for all people in governing authoritative positions. Did you know that? Did you? Even the bad ones. Even the bad ones. You ever pray for the bad ones to get saved? You should. Pray God. God, they need salvation. Remember when you and I were bad? Yes. You got to pray for them. Now, question. Who is the ruler um, at the time in, when Paul writes Romans chapter 13, verse 1? Who's the ruler over Rome at that time? Anybody know? It's Nero. Is Nero a good guy? Not a good guy. And yet, Paul says, pray, or Paul writes to Timothy, pray for people in leadership, pray for people in authority. Now, let me give you one statement here, and I can't answer, you're going to want 10 questions off these, but remember, just all, there's all kinds of balance statements, and here's one of them. Just because something is made law by a ruler, and they're the authority, it doesn't mean that law is right. Correct? Right? There's a lot of laws in America now that are not right. They're as sinful as sinful gets. So always remember that. So there's all these balance checks and balances things. But always remember that you want to pray for your leaders and pray for those in authority because God establishes those leadership positions. Now, let's, let's think a little more. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of what? What is his medal? He's what? The head of? He's the head of gold. That's right. Uh, the chest and the arms are silver. When Nebuchadnezzar first hears that, and he says, you're the head of gold, before we get the rest of it, but here's the chest and the arms of silver, what is that telling Nebuchadnezzar? His kingdom is what? It's going down at one point. It's not going to last. It's not going to move forward. It's not a permanent kingdom. So that's going to kind of rattle him a little bit, I think, right? 
So let's look at verse 39. Let's read on now. And after you, there will arise another kingdom. We know that kingdom is the, from back at 32, is the arms, uh, uh, is the breast and the arms of silver. So, so back there, and there will rise after you a kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. So the next one, the chest and the arms of silver in your notes, that's the Medo-Persian Empire, M-E-D-O-Persian Empire, M-E-D-O-Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, <clears throat> Silver is valuable as gold? The answer is no. You think when Nebuchadnezzar hears that, you think, well, that gold's more valuable than silver. They're not going to overthrow my kingdom. They're an inferior kingdom. <clears throat> now think about this. Because Daniel's a risky guy, is he not? If you tell the most powerful man on earth in those times that your kingdom's going down, what would that amount to? It's treason. And what could happen to you? They'll execute you. They'll kill you for that. But we know that old Nebuchadnezzar is now going to lose one of his best employees, right? So there's a little bit of balance right there. <clears throat> now, when he hears that after his kingdom, there will be another kingdom, the, the silver one, he doesn't know who it is, obviously this is the future for him still. Imagine, remember how big the city was? Remember how impregnable that is? I mean, historians, certain ones write that the walls are like 300 feet high, 87 feet thick. Remember that? It's a big city. Babylon also had a moat around it, double thick things, walls. Babylon got its water from the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River would flow from the north to the south to defend a city against a siege. Babylon had enough food stored, I think up to 20 years of food stored in that city, massive city, and the water would come under the city. You couldn't go through this water. There's just too much water. You would drown trying to go in to take the city. And so this city is like, you just can't take this city down. So how in the world is Babylon going to be toppled? How will it be overcome? Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of that now, but when we get to Daniel chapter 5, we're going to go over that again. But it's just good to learn it twice, okay? So here's how it all happened. The Medo-Persians, they become very powerful. They want to take the city of Babylon. But they can't get in there. So, and Babylon is so arrogant. Nebuchadnezzar is so arrogant, he thinks, our city can't be taken. That's what history teaches they have a big feast inside because they can't take us. And here's the Persians, Medo-Persians outside wanting to siege a city and then they can't do anything to us. So they're in their party. That's what they're literally they're doing. What Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know is that upriver, miles upriver, the Medo-Persians are digging a reservoir off to the side of the Euphrates River. And they build, they dig a deep reservoir and finally they get the men stationed where the water flows into the city and then they, they dig out a canal and once it opens, then the Euphrates River, the water diverts into the reservoir, way up river. As the water diverts for a certain amount of time, guess what happens to the water flowing under the city? It drops and it drops and it drops. And then when it drops, 
the Medo-Persian army goes through the water tunnel and they go into the city and they take the city. They enter in on October 12, 539 B.C. October 12, 539 B.C. They get in the city. Now, I remember listening to Chuck Missler. Anybody remember Chuck Missler? Remember him? Yeah. I remember listening to Chuck Missler decades ago and he said that, that the, 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 the Babylonians, they, they, they were so arrogant thinking our city can be taken... The Persians come in, they take the city, and it took three days because of the big party going on inside thinking they can't take us. It took three days for the Babylonians to realize that they'd been conquered, that the Persians took their city. But they did it because they came to that water tunnel because they diverted the water in October 12, 539 B.C. Here they come, and they take the city. Just as... Um, the prophecy and the interpretation, the dream and the interpretation from Daniel. Now you see, and this is just the beginning, now you see how some people would doubt that Daniel could have said these things, that they think he should have, he was probably born after these things happened. He's getting these things right on the money. And in chapter five, you get to see the exact story of how Babylon falls. It's clear as day. And remember that how the fingers appear and the hand starts writing on the wall? That's the whole story right there. Okay, so now, can I give you a real cool thing about that? I'm going to give it to you later again, but I'll give it to you right now. Is that okay? Yes. Yeah? Yes. Okay, let me give you two things. Cyrus is the king. More than likely, Darius the Great that we read about later is the general that takes the city. But Cyrus is the king that over, uh, of the Persians. Now, um, so these Persians, once they take... Babylon, remember Daniel and the gang were deported. Daniel comes about 605 BC. Then finally, the, city, the Jerusalem's destroyed, the temple's destroyed, walls broken down, 586 BC. So they're deported for 70 years. We went through that, remember? Okay. The Persians have this, this way of looking at things. They allow conquered peoples to go back to their homeland. So when the Persians come and take over, they allow 50,000 Jews to go back to the homeland and rebuild the temple. And that's how you see the end of the 70 years that they will be uh, enslaved in Babylon come to an end through the Persian Empire that comes underneath the water tunnel and takes a city. You see how God's orchestrating all the pieces? No, do you see that really? God's doing these things. Now watch this. This is an amazing prophecy. Keep your marker right here, okay? And turn to... Uh, Isaiah chapter 44. It's a little bit to your left. A couple books to your left. Isaiah chapter 44. Watch this. Remember, Cyrus is the Persian king. When you're there, say I'm there. This is not in your notes. I thought I'll just, I'll give it to you today. Because it's just, it's, an, it's incredible. It, Isaiah chapter 44. Look at just verse 28. Here's the prophecy of Isaiah. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and the temple, your foundation, will be laid. You can look at 45.1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, the anointed. Now stop right there. Notice Cyrus. Cyrus right here, God is going to use. And there will be a declaration from these that the people will go back and rebuild the temple. And they did. But you say, well, that's okay. But here's the point. This was written by Isaiah anywhere from 100 to 150 years 
before Cyrus ever came on the scene. And Isaiah says his name, Cyrus. Is that incredible? I mean, that prophecy that God told Isaiah, there's a guy named Cyrus. He's not even born yet, but his name will be Cyrus. And he's the one that once they conquer Babylon, he's the one that's going to let the Israelites go back and rebuild their temple. And you see the prophecy right there. That is just blows my mind, guys. So that's your free one. Now, back to Daniel chapter 2. Look at verse 39. Here we go. Let's continue on with this statue. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then, another, then a third kingdom of bronze. You know, the second one was silver. Which will rule over all the earth. Now, the belly and the thighs of bronze are the Greek empire. That's your next thing in your notes. That's the Greek empire. It goes Babylonian, Medo-Persian. Now the Greeks conquer the Persians. You've probably many of you have seen the movie The 300, right? The Persians conquered the Greeks because the Greeks were not formed yet as a country in a sense. They were city-states. But then after that, they start to form together because they're going to eventually conquer these Persians right here. Those are, these are real things that really happen. So the Medo-Persian Empire lasts about 200 years. The Greek city-states come together. Who was the main general conquering the world for, for, the, for Greece? It's Alexander. Alexander. In about 31, 32 um, B.C., he has conquered so much, he's driven his armies all the way to India. That's how much he's conquered. But he gets there, and there's, and by the way, I've read that he was so far out there that there were no maps to tell him where he was at. That he's creating maps as he's going along. That's how much he's conquering. But then at 31, 331, 332 BC, he has no more places to conquer. And he's bored out of his mind and he weeps and history kind of plays it that he drank himself to death. And we'll see more of him in the book of Daniel later on as he disperses his kingdom to four different generals. It's historically true and it's in the book of Daniel also. Now, so that lasts that long. And so the Greeks would have shields made of, guess what? Bronze. Just like we see in the statue right here. They last about 130 years. And they're conquered. So let's move on. Verse 40 and 41. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be divided, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. Now, here we go. Bullet point. The legs of iron and feet and toes, partly of clay and iron, are the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was the empire at the time of Christ. Now, did you notice how little it talks about the Medo-Persian and Greek Empire compared to how much it talks about the Roman Empire? There's a lot about the Roman Empire. Way more than anything else. So, here come the Romans. About 146 B.C., they're sweeping through the Mediterranean. They're just conquering everything in sight. Now, the Roman Empire, it never really was just conquered. It, it fell apart is what it did. It took hundreds of years, but it eroded from within. 
And somewhere around 400 and some A.D., it was finally done. Somewhere in there, and you know, people debate whether it was later or this and that, but it's somewhere in there. But it did erode from within. And I've read certain things that this is from a Christian perspective. This is why it eroded. This is why it fell apart. Now think about this. They had non-Romans teaching their children. Say they weren't learning the ways of Roman Empire. Homosexuality was rampant in the Roman Empire. I've watched documentaries. They were now hiring people who weren't Romans from other countries to be their soldiers to fight their wars for them. So there's no loyalty there. And they're weakening themselves. And so they start to erode from within. And little by little, and little by little. Let me tell you just something about war and army and military. Because you hear this debate periodically, and you don't have to agree with me one bit. You're wrong, but no, I'm just joking. (laughs) America better always have a strong military. It has to. We're the peacekeepers of the planet. You've noticed that, right? You cannot come together to form a peace treaty from a position of weakness, can you? If we were all on the playground and we're all 10 years old and there's a big bully and we're like half that bully size and we go up to the bully and say, hey, I just want to have peace. Can we be at peace with each other? What would that bully do? You take my lunch. You take my lunch because I have no power to stop him. I cannot argue peace from a weak position. I have to be as strong or stronger than him to come to the table and say, we need to put a peace treaty together. And that's why we always have to be the strongest. Because otherwise, they'll just run us over. And once they run us over, they're going to run everybody else over. We are the peacekeepers of the planet, whether we want to be or not. And thank God that we are. Amen to that one? Okay, now, let's move on. Let's look at verse 42. Here we go. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong. Part of it will be brittle. Verse 43. And then that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another. Interesting. Even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, say those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure how long? Forever. Forever. Okay. Now let me try to piece it all together. Now this whole interpretation of this dream has now moved from what we are looking at back in history and now it moves towards the future of our lives right now. It's just made a big jump in, in all of our lives. So let me try to piece it all together as best I can without going into great, great, great detail. How many toes in the statue? Come on, how many toes do you have? Come on, guys. It's not a true question. Uh, Eight? No. (laughs) What are the toes made out of? Do they adhere together? It's very tough to adhere together. Verse 44, he says, those kings... So now we get this idea that these 10 toes are 10 what? 
10 kings. Okay. Now, these 10 kings are trying to come together to form something. And we have watched since World War II all these different treaties, if you follow all the treaties of nations trying to come together, work together, that finally we've come to a place in the last so many decades and what they call it now is the, is the ECU. You know what the ECU is, right? Yes or no? European Common Union. Okay. So now you have this European Common Union. They're, they come together to form this group of nations. Now we know there's way more than 10 right now. We know that. But what are the toes made out of again? They don't adhere very well. We've already seen England leave, correct? It's called what? Brexit. So they don't adhere very well together. And in our lifetime, now, we are watching, we've watched this whole union form all together. Now, now stay with me, because it's going to form into 10 eventually. We may not see it in our lifetime. The rapture may happen before, but it's going to form. Now, keep your finger here, marker here, and go all the way to Revelation, way Chapter 17, last letter of the, of the New Testament in the whole Bible. Look at Revelation 17. So Daniel sees this future Roman Empire, a new Roman Empire, and it's made up of ten toes or ten kings or ten nations, whatever you want to say. It. Now watch this. Now we're going to look at an Antichrist uh, reference right now. The Antichrist in the future of the planet, I think he's alive right now. Doesn't know he's the Antichrist. Let's, uh, I know I have verse 12, but let's back up to verse 10. And there are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, that's the Antichrist, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. Can I give you a real interesting thing about that? I can't prove it. But this Antichrist, he was and is not. And is also the eighth of these rulers, these kings. But he was also one of the seven over here. So it's telling you that this Antichrist, who was one of the eight, he also existed back in history as one of the seven. Isn't that interesting? And so the possibility, it's just a possibility that because the Antichrist is going to have to be inhabited by a demon. It's going to have to be. He doesn't know he's the Antichrist right now. But he will be inhabited by a demon. So whatever that, whoever that, which demon that is that will inhabit the Antichrist in our future of this planet, and I don't think that's far away, that demon also inhabited one of these rulers from the past, one of the seven. See, does that make sense? That he will have inhabited one. Now, some people think, and I would lean, if this is actually true, if I, if I could actually prove it completely, which I can't, that it seems to me that that demon more than likely inhabited Caesar Nero. Because if you know Nero, you know he went crazy, right? And what secular history will not tell you is that Paul came and witnessed to Nero face to face. That's when Paul says, send me to Rome. He witnessed to him. That's when Nero goes crazy. And everything you read about Nero, how he burned down Rome, blaming it on the Christians. He would take Christians and um, he would burn them. He'd tie them up and burn them. He'd burn them alive, sitting there like, uh, 
held together in his yard, he would ride his chariot around, they say, nude, and screaming that you are supposed to be little lights of the world, so he'd light them on fire so they'd be lights of the world. He was just a psycho once he got witness to. So it's possible that demon now is going to wait and he'll inhabit this person, whoever this Antichrist is going to be. That's an interesting possibility, isn't it? So let's read on. And I can't prove that completely. Don't go tell people what Jim said. I can't prove it, okay? But it's interesting. The ten horns, here we go. Here's the number ten again. Which you saw are ten what? Ten kings, verse 12. Who have not yet received a kingdom. See, they're going to come together in a kingdom. But they receive authority as kings with the what? With the what? Louder? With the beast. Who's the beast again? It's another name for the what? For the Antichrist. So the Antichrist is going to gain power through these ten kings or these ten nations. So now when you put that all together, you start to realize this new Roman Empire, the ten toes, that don't adhere together very well. I think there's 20 some now, but they're going to, maybe less than that. But they can't, they're going to reduce down to ten some point in the future. Antichrist will rise to power through that new Roman Empire in the future. Now, let's take it a step further. Let's go back to Daniel. I'm going to move you forward in Daniel, show you something right there. Look at Daniel chapter 7. Just to kind of confirm some things to you, because let the Bible interpret the Bible. Amen? Always let the Bible interpret the Bible. Now look at Daniel 7, 24. Um, It says, As for the how many? Ten horns, here we go, ten. Out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. And another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. Verse 25, I didn't have it in your notes, but you need to read it. He will speak out against the Most High and will wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law at a certain point in the future of Daniel, when we get, when I start telling you, and I'll show you, boom, boom, all these things, it's going to be fascinating about times, law, and everything. In times and law, and they will be given into his hand. The Antichrist will take these 10 kings and form this Roman Empire, and he will alter things, laws, and they will be given into his hand for how long? A what? A time and a... Times and a... Half a time. Three and a half. Time, a times, and a half a time. How many years is that? Okay. So he will have power for three and a half years. You see, it's at that midpoint of the great seven-year tribulation after the temple's built that he turns into the crazy man because he walks into the temple and says, no, you worship me, I'm God. And that's when the Jews know they've been had. And he just goes on a rampage. On a rampage. And he's going to have power. He'll have power through this ten-nation confederacy, this new Roman Empire. What scares me is I don't see the United States anywhere in this Bible except for possibly Revelation 18. But that nation, whoever they are, they go down in an hour economically. They just go down. And that scares me, you know, for my, my grandkids and kids and stuff like that. Now, that's all I, that, so that's the bad part.
Can I give you the groovy part now? Okay, let's, let's bring some good news now, okay? Because then you guys are going, oh my God. Okay, let's go back to Daniel chapter, chapter uh, 2. Look at 44 and 45. It says, in the days of those kings, say those kings, kings. the ten nations of fantasy, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Say amen to that one. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure for how long? Forever. Good. Verse 45, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain. Remember the dream again? The big stone cut out, not with human hands. Remember that? Okay. Now he goes back to that. That it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, in your notes, bullet point. The stone that becomes a giant mountain is the second coming of Christ. That's the second coming of Christ. The stone that's cut out now with human hands is the second coming of Christ. In your notes. I want you to just think about a few thoughts on that right there. <clears throat> is the stone part of the statue? No, it's not. But the statue is all the different empires or governments throughout the ages, right? So the stone cut out, not part of the statue, it's not, of, not part of any earthly, political, or government system at all, right? So now we draw the reality that governments and systems of government is not our complete answer to salvation, right? Right? Did you, did you just get that? I'm not saying not to vote. Vote. Vote for the right things. Vote for the right laws. Do those things. But don't ever think that government is the answer. It's not going to be the answer. Because this world is going to go on a collision course with this Antichrist. You can't stop that. It's going to happen. But it says here that this thing was cut out not by human hands, right? Right? That means it's a supernatural event, correct? So it's a supernatural rock. It's a kingdom of God, not a kingdom of earth, not a government from earth, nothing like that. It's the kingdom of God coming and the kingdom of God comes and exists in human hearts. Amen? But there's going to come a moment at that end of that great seven-year tribulation where we come back with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the giant rock that just destroys all government and Jesus sets up his kingdom on planet earth. Amen to that one? That's the good news, okay? That's the good news. And, well, I can't, I can't go there. Now, um, <laughs> I was going to go somewhere to take me forever. I'm, I'm almost out of time. Jesus said, remember Pontius Pilate asked him, um, so y- you are a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Yes. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. What did he tell you? He says, my kingdom is not of this gov- any government's. I'm a different kingdom. And when I come and set mine up, I'm going to crush all the other governments. And I'll set my government up, and that'll be it. And Daniel gets the prophecy, guys, 2,600 years ago from right now. Is that wild? 
I mean, this prophecy is given now. About, about the, oh gosh, I gotta move fast. About the stone. Okay, about the stone which crushes all these governments. Real, real quick, keep your marker here. Turn to Luke chapter 20. This is just, we're gonna go real quick just to show you about rock and stone and Jesus Christ. Because, just so you have it. Look at verse, Luke 20, verse 17 and 18. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like what? So the stone, the rock Jesus Christ, when he comes, it crushes, does it not? Just like that, we saw right there. Now, turn to 1 Peter, go to your right, go to your right, way to your right. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read it, hit it, and move on. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 4. It says, and coming to him, him is Jesus, as to a what? As to a what? You're not, you guys not there yet? Come on, I'm really hyped up now, man. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Jesus is alive. He's a living stone. He's not part of this world. But he's alive. Now, go to Matthew chapter 16. Back up. Back up. First gospel. Matthew 16. Matthew 16. It's the famous passage in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And look at it. And after they go through this, that, and the other thing, and Peter says, thou art the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus says in verse 18 of Matthew 16, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Upon this rock I will build my, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will what? Not overpowered. People say, well, you know, I grew up Catholic. They say, Peter's the rock. No, he's not. He's not the Savior. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is. Now, he says, and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. If you go to Israel next time with us, and trust me, I'm going to plan it. I just want to make sure they're not going to close it down for COVID or anything like that again, okay? But we'll go back. I've been there four times, never get tired of it. We'll take it to Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus said these words. He says, the gates of hell shall not overpower it. As we stand there, and you've stood there, you were there with me, and you've seen, there's a, there's a cave right there. And that cave was called the gate of Hades. And Jesus is saying this to the disciples. That place is where Pan worship, and you see these diddle indentations where Pan, the God there, they used to call that Mount, Mount Baal. Baal is a false god. This was in, in the headquarters of the area of the tribe of Dan, I believe it was. It was really satanic bad. And Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of the living God based on the rock, Jesus Christ. What a great background to say that, huh? That Jesus says that right there. But when you get there, you're going to feel goosebumps when we talk about it, okay? Guarantee. Now, with that said, he's got this whole picture here. Now, let's read the last verses. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2. Let's read the very end of it here, and I'll make my last comment. I only have one close. I don't have a close close. Is that okay? Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. 
and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. That's going to get pretty uh, um, snippy in the next chapter. And Daniel made request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. He's so impressed. And then Daniel, because he does this, God gives him the dream, Daniel gets his buddies a job. Is that cool or what? So he's promoted. His buddies get a job. It's great. Now, let me give you the last thought. Last thought. This is why you just need to pray. Pray for, pray for our country all the time. The feet and the toes are iron and clay, correct? Yes. They don't adhere well. It doesn't adhere well. We know that's the new Roman Empire. That is not America, okay? But let me just take an application thought out of that. We are now in a time in our nation that, um, I've lived 60-some years, I've never seen this, where we are so, I mean, I know the 60s were turbulent. And I was in elementary school, so I don't, I don't remember a lot of it, but... We saw a great outpouring of the Spirit after that, and God brought this nation through it. But now we're seeing a polarization in our nation again. It's like we're very divided. There's factions all over the place. And, and we know that Jesus said, a kingdom divided shall not what? We're watching our nation. We are not the toes, so remember I said it. But we're watching our nation a lot like those toes. Clay and iron can't adhere together, trying to adhere together, but it's just divided. And just like that statue, because it's wobbly, we, are, we could go down because we're so divided on the, in, in this nation. It's going to take a massive move of the Spirit of God and salvation. I believe in my heart, and I believe this for so many years now, it's got to come to the young generation because they're the next ones coming up. It's got to come to them. So pray for the young generation. Pray for them. And always be okay with us raising up young preachers, young ministers, and put your tithe toward that. Because we're investing in the future in the, for this country of a, to be, have great spiritual leaders, next generation. We're all just temps. I'm older. Some of you are old. We're not going to be here a long time. We're temps. So we've got to invest in the younger generation. Now, but we know that that big rock comes out of nowhere, cut out of nowhere. So therefore, we know that no matter what we see, no matter what happens, God controls the future. Does he not? Yes. Okay, we're going to stop there. Next week, we're going to look at the 90-foot statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds that people have to fall down and worship before. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It ain't happening, man. So let's pray. God, thank you, Lord, for tonight. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you that you show us in your word, God, what, what the future holds. Thank you that you had prophets who foretold the future. You told them these things, and it came to pass. That's why we know these are not just words written by men. This is a supernatural collection of 66 writings we call the Bible. Thank you, Jesus. I just pray we're inspired by this and our faith is strengthened by this. In Jesus' name we pray and we all said, Amen and amen, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco. 
or email us at hello at nbcc.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.